Hello, you are listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. If you are a regular listener, you know that an art form I care about, especially because of its artistic and emotional power, is storytelling. I've had three episodes on biblical storytelling, interviews with Maida Commerce and her use of story medicine in her work with women and racial healing, and I have interviewed Mark Giaconelli on the capacity of story to bring healing to groups and community after a tragedy. Today, our storyteller shares with us not only her wonderful stories, but gives us insight into the importance of storytelling in African American culture. Gloria Elder has been telling stories for as long as she can remember. She enjoys writing and telling stories of her many adventures of growing up around her loving grandparents, who told her many family stories. Gloria credits her grandparents as the reason she developed a love of storytelling. As an early childhood educator and director, she began telling stories to children and adults in a daycare center. When she changed her career, she continued telling stories at birthday parties, in schools, hospitals, churches, festivals, and even cemeteries. Her stories include African folk tales and stories about family history, saving our planet, and transforming our lives. A more complete biography will be in my blog spot, as well as a link to contact Gloria. So welcome, Gloria. Thank you for being with me today. Thank you, and thank you for inviting me to come on with you. Well, let's begin by letting you tell your own life journey, uh, especially as that has led you into being a storyteller. All right. I was born uh, from the Georgia Red Clay, born into an agrarian family who I always felt like they were the salt of the earth because they were always organized in everything that they did. But I came into this world at the hands of my grandmother. She brought me into this world. I was the first granddaughter born on that, on that land. I was born on an agrarian land owned by my grandfather and grandmother. And uh, this was a lot of acreage. So we had full range of this farm area. When I was younger, my grandmother asked me to do a lot of things with her. So I did. Everything she asked me to do, I did it. If she asked me to read a poem, I did that. If she asked me to pray, I did that. She taught me how to pray. But growing up in that family meant that the family was very close together all on one piece of land. My parents were the first parents married, and my grandfather built them a house on the property. And that's where I was born, on that, in that little bitty house. We called it a shack. And as I grew older, I followed my grandmother and grandfather around because they wanted to teach us, and summertimes were the best. We had lots of children on that land because every son and daughter who got married, if they wanted to live on the land, we could. But for me, it was so wonderful because my grandparents shared so much of who they were and where they came from with me and my brothers and cousins as well. And on summer times were the best, I tell you. We would be with them all day long, doing things all around the house. And they would tell us stories in the evening. And that's where I got my love of storytelling from. My grandparents wanted me to know who I am and where I came from. So they told those kinds of stories. The uh, two things I remember about them, they were very religious. I come from a family of preachers. My great-grandpa, both my great-grandparents, granddaddies, were preachers. And imagine that. 
My big mom and big papa were called PKs. Those were preacher's kids back in the day. So my grandmother and grandfather taught us not only that we had a higher power, but that we had a special place on this earth and that we had a purpose. So that's where my spirituality began to grow. I learned to love myself as well as others. I began to understand the importance of being kind to, uh, to others and the importance of prayer and meditation and to forgive myself and to forgive others so easily. So these kinds of things I felt built my spiritual aspect of me. Growing up meant that I was grateful for what I had. My grandmother always taught us that, and my parents as well, and always taught us to do something for others. To me, those are spiritual principles, and those are the kinds of things that I learned growing up in a family with grandparents who were always around to lead you and guide you with love, of course. I never remember a time when I was scolded. They always said, well, you don't need to get a whipping for that. You just whipped your own behind. <laughs> well, you have a story for us then. You're going to begin with a story for us. I do. I'd like to share this story because it really will tell you a little bit more about me and uh, my grandparents growing up around my grandparents. And this story is called Big Papa's Stories. When I was growing up, I spent a lot of time around my grandparents, Big Mama and Big Papa, on their farm in Newland, Georgia. I loved spending my days helping with chores, playing and laughing with all my cousins, and learning lots and lots about life and our family. My brothers and I lived in walking distance to the farm. But our adventures there took us many, many miles away through time and space, thanks to Big Papa's stories. My Big Papa was born back in 1899, and he lived to be 100 years old. He was the kind of man who, when he plowed the fields, preparing them for the spring planting, the rows were so straight and neat that you couldn't see the mule's track in that Georgia red clay. They looked like one of Big Mama's patchwork quilts. Big Papa was funny and he laughed and joked with us often. He had a smile that could light up the room. He had a funny habit of saying, Laura catches all meddlers, teasing us when he caught us doing something we were not supposed to be doing. Big Papa's real name was Laura Smith. Big Papa saw a lot of life in those 100 years, and he loved to tell his grandchildren stories about all he had seen in his long, full life. There was more than a dozen of us grandchildren in varying ages and sizes, and we were the perfect audience. Big Papa's stories were our favorite part of the day. We could not wait to finish our chores and circle around Big Papa to hear his stories at the end of every day. Imagine that many grandkids getting quiet enough to listen to one person. But we did, because we loved Big Papa's stories. It was the same every night. At the end of the day, after supper was served and kitchen was clean, we'd all gather around my grandparents in my grandparents' big bedroom. That bedroom had a big stone fireplace on one side of the room. It was close to what seemed like a huge bed where he and my big mama slept. On cool nights, Big Papa made a fire in that fireplace. And he carefully described what he was doing so that we would learn how to do it ourselves one day. I can see him now. He was a medium-height, stocky man with a firm build. He had a bald head that was lighter than his hands because he wore a hat whenever he went outside. Under that hat, he wore a stocking cap, even in the house. Under, it, made, it was made from one of Big Mama's old stockings. 
Big Papa would gather the small strips of wood he called kindling and put them in the bottom of the fireplace. He said the kindling makes it easier to start the fire. Then he called, called up some old newspaper and placed it on top and in between the kindling and lit a match. After the kindling and the newspaper burned down, Big Papa placed several oak tree logs on top of that fire. And it all burned until the kindling began to turn red. Pretty soon, that oaky smell filled our nostrils and the heat from the fire warmed our bodies. I love the sight of the red flames and the smell of that oak wood burning. In a little while, the room was so hot, we'd have to move back from the fireplace. Now that the logs were burning easily, it was time to hear stories. Big Papa always began the same way. I can see him now. First, he would ask us what kind of story we wanted to hear, a ghost story or a family story. Now, I always wanted to hear family stories, even when I was little. I always wanted to know about the family, who I was and how I got here. I wanted to know who came before my grandparents and their parents. I wanted to know my family roots in history. So I always voted for a family story. Now, my brothers and boy cousins usually voted for a ghost story. But I didn't like ghost stories so much because we'd have to walk home in the dark and the boys would make scary noises. That night, I won. It would be a family story. And then Big Papa did what he did each and every time before the story got started. He'd sit in his straight back cane bottom chair. Then he'd lean back on two back legs of the chair. Now, nobody could do that except Big Papa. We were not allowed to do that ever. Then he'd stroke his chin with his right hand while looking up at the ceiling as if he was thinking. Then he'd slowly sit the chair flat and begin the story. That evening, Big Papa told a story about his grandma, Henny. Grandma Henny was the oldest person we'd ever heard about other than Methuselah in the Bible. Late in her life, Grandma Henny had come to from Oglethorpe, Georgia, to the farm in Noonan to live with Big Papa's parents. Big Papa got started with the story. Well, you know, Grandma Henny was a low, black, nappy-headed woman who carried everything on her head. I was fascinated. My young mind raced to Africa. I had seen pictures of African women who learned when they were little to carry all manners of things on their heads. It was an amazing feat, a wonderful picture in my mind. Then there she was, Grandma Henny, with a basket of fresh picked vegetables and fruits balanced right on the top of her head. But when I came back from my daydream, Big Papa's story seemed to have turned into a ghost story about Grandma Henny. Big Papa said, at night, Grandma Henny slept in bed with her head at the window. The window was always about six inches open. Now, if Grandma Henny heard noises during the night, she'd peer out of that window as if she was looking for something or somebody to come. Again, my young man ran wild. Thinking of all the people and things that Grandma Henny might be looking out there for. Were they scary? Were they monsters? Were they ghosts? That night after the story, the boys had a ball making scary noises all the way home. I was scared a little, but I still felt happy walking along lost in my thoughts. I discovered that Big Papa had just told a family story and a ghost story, satisfying mine and my me and the boy's desire. We all got our wish. Thanks to Big Papa's story that night, I now felt I knew just a little more about my family. My great-great-grandmother, Grandma Henny, had come to Georgia from Africa and could balance things right on her head and maybe even see ghosts. 
That was just enough of a family story to leave me wanting more, to know more and more. To this day, I am on a quest to document my family history and to share it with my family and friends. And thanks to Big Papa, I'm going to keep looking for more stories and keep telling them for many years to come. That was great. That was wonderful. Thank you uh, for that. You are welcome. Well, tell us a little more then about your own uh, journey. All right. Well, you know, I in my family, education was so important. And I always knew that I was going to go to college. My grandparents and their daughters, my aunties, all wanted me to go to the same college that they went to. So I went to college and I graduated. And when I left home, I know two things that always made me happy. One was to share with people who I was and where I came from. I always talked uh, in conversations with people about my grandparents and my parents and family and where we lived. And as I got through college, I worked, started, began to um, run a daycare center in early childhood. I had a background in early childhood education. And I started a daycare center. And there was a consortium of daycare centers that met almost monthly. And during my conversations with some of the directors as a director that I was, I was sharing stories about my family. And one of the directors said to me one day, you, you need to be telling those stories to other people uh, because you, you, you seem so happy when you're sharing those stories. Anyway, and as an early childhood educator, I started telling stories to children on, on at the daycare center every Friday morning. And I even dressed up in costume when I told those stories. And one day, I got interested in doing more and began to tell stories on a bigger stage. But before I go there, let me tell you a story that I told, that I tell to young children. Sounds good to me. <laughs> the name of this story is called Anansi's Children. And this story is adapted by and told by a fellow storyteller of mine called, named Charlotte Blake Austin. Now, so I tell you this story with her permission. She, she, uh, is, she gave me permission when I asked her if I could tell it. Long ago, when the sky and the earth were brand new, and all the creatures on the earth lived in peace with one another, there lived in a far, far corner of an African continent, Anansi, the spider. Back when the earth was brand new, the night was black and long. Now the younger creatures had good eyes and they could peer through the darkness and see where they were going. But the older creatures like Anansi had to make sure that if he went away from home, he had to be sure to return before the sun went down and it got dark. Anansi has six children, and each one of Anansi's children had a special gift. The first one was called Sea Trouble, and he could see trouble when it was happening miles and miles away. The second child of Anansi was called Road Builder, and he could take sticks and twigs and mud and build him a road that went anywhere. The third child of Anansi was called River Drinker. In one big gulp, 
she could hold the entire river in her jaws. The fourth child of Anansi was called Game Skinner. With his bare hands, he could pull the skin off of a dead animal or a fish in a second or two. The fifth child of Anansi was called Stone Thrower. It is said that he once threw a stone so high that it knocked the star out of its original position in the sky. The sixth child of Anansi was called Cushion. Everyone in the village loved Cushion because Cushion followed around little children and sometimes they would climb up high in places where they should not have been and sometimes they would fall. Cushion would run under them and they would land on his soft, soft belly. One day, Anansi took a trip from his home, and the sun went down and it got dark. But Anansi had not come back. D-Trouble peered into the darkness, and he could see that Anansi was in trouble. Road Builder built a road, and they followed it this way and that way and that way and this way, and it ended at the river. But still there was no Anansi. Sea Trouble peered down into the river and could see that Anansi was in the belly of a fish. River Drinker took one big gulp and held it in her jaws. Game Skinner pulled the skin off of that fish and Anansi came walking out between the bones. They were about to go home when a hawk came down, picked up Anansi, and flew him into the sky. Stone Thrower got a rock. He threw it, hit the hawk, he let go of Anansi. Whoop! Anansi was falling faster and faster down to earth quickly. Cushion ran underneath him, and Anansi landed on his soft, soft belly. When they all came back home, Anansi thought of what his children had done for him. And he decided to give a gift to the child who had helped him the most. So he called upon Inyame, the creator. The creator said, when you could not find your way out of darkness, your children provided a light. A gift of light should be given. And right beside Anansi appeared a great round globe of light. Ah, this is what I will give to the child who helped me the most. Anansi gathered everyone in the village and announced what he was going to do. And they started to argue about who should get it. Some said it should be sea trouble. Others said, no, 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 no. It should be Road Builder who did the most to help Anansi. River Drinker is the one who truly saved him from danger. Some of them said, no, it is Game Skinner who deserves, who deserves the gift. Stone thrower is the one who should receive it. Most of them said, many of them said cushion. No one could decide who should get the gift of light, including Anansi. So he called upon Inyame once again, the creator. And the creator said, this is what I will do. I will take this globe of light and place it high in the sky where all can share in his light and be reminded of how all announces children who saved him from danger that day. Now the Ashanti people say that we are all announces children. Each one of us has a special gift that we can use to help someone else. And if you go outside sometimes at night and you look up at the sky, you see that round globe of light and it seems to be shining its brightest, you can be sure that somewhere one of Anansi's children is using his gifts or her gifts to lend someone a helping hand. Maybe that child will be you. That's a wonderful story. Thank you. I just so enjoy sharing and telling that story. Well, and, and so you you um, still like go to libraries and things, right? Yes, I do. 
Yes, I do. I still go to libraries. I tell stories at churches. I tell stories in the park. I am um, getting ready to tell stories for a private school coming up at the, uh, in October. So I tell stories to children and adults. I tell children's stories to, to people of all ages. But my favorite is telling stories to children. And I tell you, the reason why is because I walked a mile in my grandmother's shoes and she had my grandfather build a little red schoolhouse for those little children. All those children that you saw gathered around Big Papa to hear his stories. One summer afternoon, she said, Laura, I want you to build me a schoolhouse, a little red schoolhouse, because in the summertime, these children need to keep learning, and I got something to teach them. So she taught me catechism and recitation. Now, in case some of you don't know what recitation is, that is standing up and repeating a poem that you have learned. You have to recite it out loud to my grandmother. I called it recitation. Well, now that's that's um, uh, that's the name of your book, isn't it? I walked a mile and. Yes, it is. It's one of the names. It's it's a it's, it's the name of my book, and um. I would like to just really share a little bit about how I got into storytelling and, uh, you know, the two organizations that I'm involved with. Yeah, yeah. Tell us about that. Are related to storytelling. As I said, people started encouraging me to tell stories. I've always written these stories down that my grandparents tell, tell me, told me. I have them penned in journals. I am a journaler, so I just write anywhere. You give me a piece of paper, and I'll write. I'm journal. I'm a journaler. So I started writing these stories down. And one day, I was talking to a friend of mine who had helped me with a project uh, for um, children in stress. And uh, he was a puppeteer, but he also was a part of the organization that I later joined called the Columbus Storytellers of Georgia. And he said to me, I'd like for you to come out and read some of your stories or tell some of your stories at one of our meetings. And I did. And immediately I was welcomed into the group to join. So that's how I got involved with the Kaumba Storytellers of Georgia. Now, Kaumba Storytellers of Georgia is a 28-year-old organization that was started here in Atlanta in 1995, where several storytellers got together and decided to form an affiliate of the National Association of Black Storytellers. And that's how I got involved with the National Association of Black Storytellers, because they are my parent organization on the Kaumba, and I started going to their conferences. They are a national organization, and they hold conferences every November in a different state in a different city every year. And they are 42 years old. And I started attending that conference and that's how I got involved with more storytelling. And from there, I started getting involved with more and more storytelling. People started asking me to tell stories on different platforms. So while I was a Kaumba storyteller, I became one of the officers and started to head up a program called Mama Tales. And Mama Tales are about telling stories about mamas, grandmamas, aunts, anybody that's a mother figure in your life. So one of my colleagues said in that meeting one evening, well, we want you to tell a story. And I said, but I am, you know, the coordinator. I shouldn't, I don't need to tell a story. So they said, no, go back and tell us, come back, get a story. When we meet again, we want you to have a story. So I went home that night and I penned a story. And I said, I will share this story. The name of that story was, I Walked a Mile in Her Shoes, A Story of Unconditional Love. And I told that on stage 
at the Apex Museum, an African-American museum in downtown Atlanta. And there on that stage, as I was telling that story, a vision appeared to me as a book. And that's how this story became a book. I Walked a Mile in Her Shoes, a story of unconditional love. And I think it's so dear to me because growing up with grandparents who were so loving, they began to help me to understand that they were important in my life. I learned that they were the bridge between me and my parents. I could always go to my grandparents. And so I began to write stories and publish stories about growing up with my grandparents and the lessons I learned from them. So I walked them out in her shoes as one of those such stories. Well, you, and you also partnered with a, with a, 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 a talented young man uh, in illustrating the book. Yes, yes. And his name is Jeremy Hughes. He was only 17 when I met him. He was in high school. He was a senior in high school. He went on to get a scholarship to SCAD. And he is now an engineer and still penning and writing stories. And he's getting ready to do my second book. Oh, okay. So you're going to have a second one. Wonderful. Getting ready to, he's, he's, he stays on me to illustrate his next, my next book. Well, now, what's the name of this one? Do you have a title for it yet? It is called, I Named Your Daddy After the Mailman. Oh, okay. <laughs> That's a great title. Um, so there'll be, I'll, I'll include a link uh, on my blog spot uh, for access to your book. Uh, okay. Yeah, that'll be great. Um, Have them to email me at Gloria Elter at Comcast.net or to get the book. Okay. Okay. Um, well, tell us just a little bit more about the national the national black storytellers. I mean, when when they have the conference, do they have like an evening where the public can come? Yes, their opening night is always open to the public. This year, we're going to be in Utah. Oh wow! Lake City, Utah. Okay. And uh, the first the opening night is always open and free to the public. But every night there is storytelling, storytelling, dancing, drumming. I mean, it's, it's an event that when I went, the first time I went, it was like an old time prayer meeting. That's how much fun it was. Everybody was just beaming and listening to stories, telling stories, dancing, drumming. It was just, um, it was just amazing. So I've never stopped going. Well, now in the Kaumba, do you do the same thing? Do you have like a, I mean, a monthly performance kind of thing? We meet monthly and we have about six signature programs. In January, we have what we call a story swap and anybody can tell stories on that platform. And in February, we have historical portraits. And those are stories about African-Americans in history such as maybe Martin Luther King, Arthur Ashe, and then little-known figures are also shared as well, uh, little-known African-Americans as well. And then in May, we have Mama Tales, and that's about mothers, grandmothers, mother figures. In June, we have Papa Tales, or Father Tales, and that's about the contributions and and the stories about fathers in our lives. Males and females are telling these stories. Also in June, we offer a Juneteenth program. Since we just have it as a national holiday, we have added Juneteenth stories, although we've always participated in Juneteenth activities with other organizations in Atlanta, where we actually were in their parades or riding on their floats or performing in their parks. But now Kaumba has their own Juneteenth program. And the most signature program that we enjoy doing is Kwanzaa. And Kwanzaa is a holiday 
that was created by Milana Karenga in the 19, in, around 1965. And uh, he helps us to understand the importance of principles to go by and to live by uh, throughout the year. One of those principles is Kaumba, which means creativity. Oh, okay. Yes. And, the, you know, so there are seven principles, but ours is the principle number six. Uh, in Kiswahili, it means creativity. Okay. Well, so one of the, I'm sorry, go ahead. So that's, that's what our signature programs look like. And we're also asked all throughout the year to do other things with other groups. We partner with other groups, storytellers, schools. So we are busy. We are very busy in Atlanta as storytellers. Well, one of the um, fascinating things that you do is tell stories in cemeteries. So tell us a little bit about that. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Oh, yes. Well, Oakland Cemetery is a historic cemetery in Atlanta, and it's one of the oldest public parks and a final resting place for many of the city's most noted citizens. So it's a little more than a mile from downtown, and it's 48 acres. It's full of treasures such as history and gardens and sculptures and architecture, ancient oaks, and magnolias. It's a great place for weddings. It's a green space. It's an art gallery. It's a classroom space. And it's a place to celebrate the city's riches and fascinating past and its promising future. So I was asked to tell stories there by a fellow storyteller. And I said yes. Didn't know what I was getting into. And uh, the event that I participate in is called Capturing the Spirit of Oakland. And it's done every October, the last two weekends in October. And where stories are told of the people who are buried in the cemetery. And there is an African-American section, of course, that I tell stories at in that section. And every year, there is a different character, and there is a different scene. It is so beautiful. It's set up with background scenes that mimic whatever you're telling stories about. So I just love telling stories at Oakland. And rain or shine, more than 7,000 people show up over those eight days. Wow. To, to listen to stories in the cemetery. And also they get a beautiful tour as well of the cemetery. So I just enjoy telling stories at that cemetery. So I'd like to share a story with you. How about that? Absolutely. And this story is one of the, the ones that I just had so much fun doing. So I want to share it this evening. Good evening, everyone. Good evening. You've come by at a good time. I've just been working on a new recipe. It's a good time of year for all things pumpkin. My name is Myra Miller. And don't think that just because I've come here to Oakland that I've stopped dreaming up delicious concoctions. I was once the most renowned baker in the entire city of Atlanta. Now, I assure you, This was no small thing for a woman born into slavery. But after I opened my bakery in Atlanta in 1870, all the wealthiest families fought for a place on my calendar of Atlanta's most fashionable events. I was born in 1811 in Virginia, but as a child, I was sold from family to family and ended up in Rome, Georgia, before being freed by the war between the states. That war may seem like a long time ago to you, but I can still recall the sound of gunfire and the earth trembled as the cannonballs roared across the sky. I cannot describe the fear 
and hope mingle in my heart. Who prays in the same breath for the gunfire to subside and yet to come closer? I did, for I knew that change was coming, and I was determined to be part of that change. For those of you who know your history, Rome, Georgia burned in 1864 as General Sherman marched his way to the sea. But from the destruction, I built a new life as a free woman. I began to work for myself, free to prosper, and Atlanta seemed to be the perfect choice for my new home, since I was my own phoenix rising from the ashes of the past. I became what you would now call a celebrity chef. Well, well, a celebrity baker, at least. I was known for my cakes. Lemon cakes, cream cakes, sponge cakes, light as a feather, and ice to perfection. But my specialty was wedding cakes. I had a fondness for flowers, and those cakes were famously covered in sugary blossoms as beautiful as nature's own. Of course, back then, we had no refrigeration, and our Georgia heat was the enemy of every cook. Fortunately, sugar is a great preservative as are spirits, such as rum or bourbon, <laughs> which is what really made fruitcakes so popular in my day. I always said a splash of spirits for the cake and a tablespoon for the cook. Now, originally, my shop was on West Peachtree, right downtown Atlanta. But in 1877, we moved to a larger shop over on Ivy Street. Now, I've heard they renamed Ivy Street, but Atlanta has always liked to change street names and confuse people every now and again. I love that first shop. You cannot know what it meant for me, born into bondage, to have people come to me to seek my advice and my services. And I assure you, I had to be a shrewd businesswoman, too. I always wore a fine dress under my apron. So when ladies of means came in, I could negotiate properly. It is one thing to create something beautiful. It's quite another to make sure you get paid for it. Now, when it comes to my accomplishments, I don't expect you to simply take my word. Why, that will be boasting, and I have no need to boast. I remember an article from the Atlanta Constitution in 1875. It was about a silver wedding anniversary party I catered. It read, the cakes were made by Myra Miller, who has won a great reputation by her success in this art. Some of her work presented last evening was as beautiful as anything of the kind we ever saw, which I have to say was true. I outdid myself. The newspaper finished the article by saying, the cakes were masterpieces of culinary genius, genius. Mm, mm, mm. I would have been overwhelmed by the praise were I not so accustomed to it. Oh dear, I, I, I have been so caught up that I have forgotten to mention my family. My husband and I had six children and six was not so large a number in my day. My beloved son Norris is buried right here beside me. And though I did love my work, my family was a blessing and a joy. Though my life began in obscurity, my death in 1891 was mourned citywide. My obituary reported that during my illness, my family received constant inquiries from Atlanta's most prominent families. Well-to-do ladies from all of Atlanta, knowing my love for flowers, sent bouquet after bouquet until my house was filled to the brim with their offerings. And I'm so happy to be spending eternity here in Oakland, where the glorious gardens bloom year-round. That's a great story. And I love the way that you are able to capture uh, the, the, the nature of the person, uh, to really bring them alive. Uh, that's great. It's so much fun. It's so much fun. I really enjoy it. Well, I met you uh, 
at a uh, uh, an event that Made of Commerce uh, was having, where she was kind of uh, uh, launching her her memoir, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, and so that's where and 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 during that event, uh, I guess you have she was doing a, an elder women's writing group, and each of you read for that. Kind of tell us a little bit about that group. Yes, this was a group that made a started a year ago and um, she invited women to come and share their stories, their life stories. And I was speaking with her one day on the phone. In, in, in fact, Maida is a longtime friend. I have known her for more than 20 years. And uh, we met at a conference called the National Wellness Conference and I attended one of her workshops. She was still doing healing work. And her group, uh, she was doing the uh, group of story medicine. And I, we just became fast friends and we followed each other, kept up with each other over the years. So one afternoon, not too long ago, we were talking on the phone We just needed to, I just needed to call her. And uh, I started talking a little bit about some of the things that had happened in my life. And she said, you know, I'm getting ready to start a group, so I want you to be a part of it. So I said, yes. So this group is called the Elder Women's Writers Group. And it's a story about women, all women, and how it is important for us to tell our stories. We have so much that has happened to us over our lives that we need to bring it up and bring it out. It helps us to break the silence. It helps us to find language for the emotional stuff that we've been having, have going on inside of us. And it moves and transforms that energy. Then we change and we become freer. So that is one of the things that really endeared me to want to be a part of the group. I went in no, not knowing that all the ins and outs of writing. So one of the things I declared one day early on is like, I'm not a writer. <laughs> and of course, that was soon kicked out of the window by the group. They said, forget about that, you're a writer. And uh, so we write these stories. I mean, we write something every month. We meet monthly. We met monthly. And we write stories about something that is inside of us that we want to share. It can be happy things. It can be sad things. It can be good things or bad things. But we share those and we listen to each other's story. And that uh, is one of the things that I have so enjoyed with this group is that we're able to bring up things that maybe we thought we had gotten over. And when we start to bring them up and think about them and write them, wow, that needed to come out. Because one of the things that I learned from my grandmother is that we don't get sick from what we eat. We get sick from what's eating us. Mm. So that's been so healing for me to write stories and to share them with this group. Well, how do you... uh experience the difference in writing a story and and speaking a story? You know, I've been thinking about that since you asked me. Um, I think that writing helps one to bring up the emotional pieces that are embedded, embedded and so deep inside. So it's sort of like a cleansing writing those stories, telling those stories on stage is simply a way to express and to express with emotion in front of people. For an example, the stories that I write are really no different than the stories I tell. It's just performing that story so that I can draw the people in to my story. That's the difference. 
writing it, I'm sitting here writing and that's cathartic for me. But when I tell that story, I am engaging, I'm bringing you into my story. I want you to be able to hear and to get into that story with me. Well, you are a wonderful storyteller. Thank you. And I am, I am deeply grateful uh, that you have been my guest today and that you have shared some wonderful stories with us. Thank you so much. It has been a lot of fun and my pleasure to come and share with you. I don't know uh, if this is a proper thing to say, but I've never done a podcast before. No, that's all right. That's all right. And, and you did well. <laughs> so I was like, okay, but I'm a risk taker. So here I am. Well, and I'm glad you have been. Thank you for being with me. You, thank you, David, so much for inviting me. Well, you are listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. The intro and outro music for this episode is from a clip of a song called Father Let Your Kingdom Come, which is found on the Porter's Gate Worship Project Work Songs album and is used by permission from the Porter's Gate Worship Project. This show has as its purpose enabling you to hear the voices of the Christian left and about the issues and concerns that are of interest to the Christian left. Practicing Gospel, Inc. is a nonprofit organization. If you like what you've heard, go to my website at practicing-gospel.blubrry.net to subscribe and hopefully to donate. Your participation will help me continue this effort. Thank you for listening and for your support. Blessings. May the words from my mouth speak your peace. May the words from my mouth speak your peace.